Alan Edward Bell is a film editor, and he was known for his work on the Hunger Games series, Catching Fire, and Mockingjay Part 1 and Part 2. He won the San Diego Film Critics Society Award for Best Editing in 2009, and he was also known for the 500 Days of Summer, where he was nominated for the Eddie Award for Best Edited Feature Film and the Online Film Critics Society Award for Best Editing in 2010. Aside from editing movies, Bell loves to rock climb and is a self-taught silversmith. He has been making jewelry for over 30 years and he sells his creations on Etsy. Mia conducted this interview during the COVID-19 pandemic where he's been spending time with his family back home in New Hampshire. Bell, welcome to the Creative Process. Thank you. So we were just discussing before, I mean, your path to becoming a film editor and you've edited some of the, you know, most iconic films of recent memory. But how did you didn't know that you, um, that film editing was for you? You have a slightly unusual path. Yeah, I, well, I didn't really know that it was for me. I kind of fell into it in a way. I left high school after... 11th grade or right around the middle of 11th grade I by the end of 10th grade I knew I didn't want to go to high school anymore because I was really into rock climbing I was super into climbing rocks and being outside and I had a lot of creative pursuits at that time but for the most part I just as I was going through you know the the beginning or late stages of puberty I found rock climbing and I became a rock climbing guide so by so around the age of 14 I started climbing and by the time I was 17 I knew that all I wanted to do was climb rocks, um, which have nothing to do with film editing. But because I grew up in Los Angeles and I had a lot of friends in the industry, um, my dad was a construction coordinator, so he built sets and did some location scouting and things. Then I had a very close friend who was a, an assistant film editor. Um, I was around a lot of people in film. And by the time I was in my sort of early 20s, around 21, I started looking around at what I thought the future was in terms of being a rock climbing guide and that looked to me like I'd be 40 years old and living in my car and when you're 20 you know 40 is old or at least it feels old yeah. or you think it's old so <laughs> I I just started asking my friends like how do you do this and I went over to visit a cutting room uh, that Rob Reiner was actually directing this film called Princess Bride and my friend Steve Nebius was uh, the first assistant and this this wonderful man named Robert Layton was the editor and uh, Bob was kind enough to let me sit in while he cut a scene and this is going to sound pretty arrogant but I looked at that and I thought wow this looks really easy I mean this is a, seems like a pretty easy job and maybe compared so to it, climbing <laughs> yeah well I mean yeah it, well it, it really what 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 the big uh, comparison for me was I would take a lot of film people out climbing, um, yeah. a lot of stunt people, writers, and directors, and they a lot of them seemed really stressed um, and battling, you know, anger in a way, and so climbing was sort of their way to get it out, and I, I, it always perplexed me because I thought, man, here I am, you know, I'm out taking these people out, I and mean, it's not like I'm risking my life, but, it, you know, it can be a dangerous sport, and I barely, barely making ends meet. And I knew what people were making in the film industry. I thought, geez, 
they don't really have anything to be stressed about. Like, they shouldn't be worrying about what their next meal is going to come. And I was basically, you know, working paycheck to paycheck, and they weren't steady paychecks. So yeah. I basically decided at that point, well, maybe I'll try this editing thing. Let's see. I always really loved computers, and, and at that time, film was all film. It was all there – there really wasn't much computer or internet – well, the internet was basically nascent. It was just starting um, – at that time, the World Wide Web didn't even exist. So everything was done on film. But I, I really loved computers, and I had taught myself how to program when I was young. Um, and that was all because I thought, oh, the future of entertainment are going to be these computers. Um, so it was a good time for me to get in because I, I started off as an apprentice and worked my way up and then eventually ended up working with uh, Bob Layton, Robert Layton, the guy who I originally sat in with and became his first assistant, and I was fortunate enough to be there at the time when the digital gap started to, you know, uh, digital computers and editing became a digital format, and so we stopped working on film during that transition, and I was able to bring him and Rob Reiner's company, Casarock, into the, the future. So uh, it turned out really, really good for me. What I thought was easy, I learned really wasn't that easy and you really had to put a lot of time and um, dedication and sacrifice into uh, the job and the career and eventually I I did stop climbing wholesale but I did pretty much go cold turkey for a while because I I had one foot in and one foot out and in order to really be successful in the film industry you really have to be dedicated and throw just your body heart and soul into it or you won't be successful at least that's how I Oh, well, you're, you're very humble, as you say, that we should say some of the limited <laughs> successes you have um, edited are the, the Hunger Games. Um, and just speaking of the action franchises like uh, of Spider-Man and then, of course, you know, um, Water for Elephants and these sensitive dramas. So um, it's more than limited, I should say. <laughs> Thank you. I think it's interesting just going back to that. Um, I imagine that the pressure, like if you could transfer over certain skills, you said there's not a lot related to, but I think of rock climbing, this no no tech, or practically no tech. I'm sure there's some kind of sophisticated um, gear you need, but um, almost no tech <laughs> to to now what you do. Um, and I think some of the signature things that you do is is very high tech, and and you you know push the boundaries in terms of um, you know frames that you combine. And if you can speak a little bit about that. Well, it's interesting because there are similarities between rock climbing and editing and, and actually any creative process in my mind. Mm-hmm. Uh, in rock climbing, there, the level of focus that's required yeah. is, is pretty intense. And, you know, I, I have always gravitated towards creative pursuits that are come with baggage and limitations. So mm-hmm. I mean, maybe I'm not uh, articulating this properly, but the idea that, you know, if you're a writer and you've got a blank page, your imagination is your limit. There there really aren't very, you know, the only limitation is how do I get these ideas out of my head onto a, a canvas or paper, right? If you're a rock climber and you're trying to get from point A to point B, the limitations are the actual rock and, you know, how steep it is and what handholds and how you might be able to do it. So you're you're kind of problem solving and you're focusing on solving that problem, which is I want to get from here to here. And editing is very, very similar in that 
there are limitations. A lot of times people will compare editing to writing. Mm -hmm. I think there are some similarities, but it's not. Editing is more like editing a pre-written piece of work. So you're starting with a script and you've got this guide. So you know where point A is, the first page, and, you know, the point B is the last page. And you're trying to create this whole arc. But there's a whole set of parameters and beats and things that you have to you have to pay attention to along the way, right? So that focus is very, very similar, and the fact that there's a structure and there are limitations. You can't just completely go outside the box, but within those limitations, there's a great deal of freedom, um, and it's the same as for rock climbing. There's a great deal of, you can approach it in any number of ways, and, you know, if you look at a climb, there may be, you could take 10 people and they could do the same climb, and maybe eight of them will all go the same route. They'll use the same footholds and handholds and more or less the same uh, way. And then you'll find two that do it completely differently. And, you know, unless you do it every which way, you won't know which is the most efficient. And I think that that is sort of true for editing and, and filmmaking in general, that it requires a great deal of focus and passion, but there are sort of limitations um, to the format and how you can approach it and whether you'll be successful. Mm. And so, so there was one um, line to somebody, someone else who worked now uh, in, in stone. Um, I always liked it. It was uh, Michelangelo, and he said, I think you might know this one. And he was asked, um, how, do you, how do you sculpt, how did you sculpt this angel? And he says, well, it's, it's easy. I take away everything that's not angel. I believe that's, I might be getting that wrong. But I think about that. You, you're giving this material. Um, and then you have to make it all smooth and make it, you know, instantly something that works all together and take out all the parts that aren't angel, I guess. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, that is definitely an approach, and, and I know a lot of editors think in those terms. I kind of take a slightly different approach, right. and that rather, and part of it is because the amount of material that we have to work with, uh, it's with stone, there's a finite amount of stone, and, and you carve it away, and, and you take a, you know, it's beautiful, the idea, mm -hmm. like, there, oh, I see this angel, and I carve it out. I'm not really that good. So, like, when I look at hours of footage, let's say I have a, a scene that's three minutes long, and I've yeah. got three hours of footage for that scene, you know, <laughs> over multiple cameras. Yeah. Um, I'll watch all that footage, and, you know, I wish I was, this was an exception, but sometimes you have six hours of footage for a three-minute scene, or 12 hours of footage. Um, but you, I'll watch it all, and I guess what I'm doing is I'm marking the bits that I think are the angel, you mm -hmm. know, um, and I'm sort of keeping those listed. I either sequestered some way or marked and, you know, write down in my notebook or just keeping it. I love that performance. I love that moment. And, and I'm looking for, you know, what's the heart of the scene, what's important here, and I find that from you know, reading the material, watching the performances, and then talking to the director, and then just my own gut instinct. Um, and I just pick those pieces out and put them together in a way that I think supports all those other aspects that I just previously mentioned. So, uh, and hopefully I'll have something that's good. Usually I'll have something that's kind of mediocre and needs to be fleshed out more because it is one of the only processes that it's very much like painting in some ways I guess you could say because even if you get a stroke wrong you know it's not like it's permanent you can, you can paint over it or you can wipe it off and, you, and that's kind of what we do as we're editing or at least what I do is I, I just do it over and over and over and kind of fail until I until I'm happy with what I'm seeing 
and then I show it to other people and they tell me what they think and then I make adjustments based on their reaction. It's not, it's a process that requires input from others and you're making a piece for an audience as opposed to like when I'm making jewelry, I'm just making it for myself. I mean, unless I have a commissioned piece, it's 100% my thing. But film editing is completely different. It's, it's, there's, there are limitations both in the medium and in the final product, which is, it is sort of a product, you know, you want an audience to respond positively to it. That makes sense? Yes, it does. And I, I imagine also from someone who's a, pretty much an outsider in that process, um, but I can imagine it would might also be frustrating when you have a beautiful scene or you have a beautiful shot or sequence, and then sometimes it doesn't correspond in a sequence, it doesn't, it doesn't follow on to the next, and you have to, you have to kill it. I don't know how yeah, You have to kill it. <laughs> yeah, it, it's actually one of the things very early on. Um, yeah, editing can be a humbling process because mm-hmm. I, and and I know that um, when I first started, I was very cocky. I mm-hmm. thought, oh, this job, like you know, this is going to be so easy. And the more I, I did it, the more I realized I don't really didn't really know as much as I thought I did, and the. The longer I, I do this, I realize that you cannot fall in love with cuts. You can't mm-hmm. fall in love with scenes. I mean, you can, but you have to be willing to let them go. Because as you're making a movie, you're building each scene as if it's the most important piece of the movie. And you're often getting them out of order, right? So you're getting the last scene first or the middle scene. You know, mm-hmm. it's not like you start and go, okay, here's scene one and let's build forward. You get this great arc that you can sort of build it. Instead, you're taking all these little interstitial scenes and building, you may get three of them in a day, and you're building them together, and you're treating each one like it's the most pivotal moment in the movie, and you're really just focusing on it. You may spend days on this, um, and then eventually, you everything is sort of pasted together, and you look at it, and you realize that, you know, some of those scenes, are they're way too long. The pauses are maybe too long, or you left something out that's really important that's going to support a more important moment or just a moment that's really important to a character or a plot, you know, uh, section that needs to be uh, supported in some way. And so you, you have to look at the piece as a whole and be willing to take things out that you love. I mean, and early on, that was very hard for me to do. It was also very hard for me to make changes to, to cuts. I would fall in love with edits and things and people would want something different. And I was very... I had a hard time accepting that. And, you know, it's interesting because I think the entertainment, in terms of creativity and art, it's very, it's a very collaborative process, but at the same time, it, sometimes it's artful, sometimes it's more craft-like. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there are times when we're, everybody on the project knows they're not making something that is gonna qualify, you know, as art. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean it's not artfully executed. Um, and then there are other times when, when everybody is working on something and, and it's obvious that it transcends our work in a way. You know, it's, it's greater than, than the combination of its uh, pieces. And, but for the most part, the entertainment, it's an industry. And so, you know, the creativity you get out of that is it's different than when you're just painting or you're writing, you know, or you're, you're even actors are getting something different than the actual piece itself. I mean, um, and you don't have a singular control, right? There are auteurs, but they're still having to collaborate with studios and, and marketing departments and things like that, which is why I 
try to have other pursuits because, you know, sometimes you never know what a movie's going to be like. You never know how it's going to feel when you start. You could absolutely love the script, and then as the footage rolls in, it may not actually be living up to the standards or, or your expectations going in, and sometimes it actually exceeds those expectations. But because you don't know, it, it, it can sometimes be very fulfilling, and sometimes it can actually be soul-crushing if you if you allow it to be you know no, yeah. I'm kind of rambling here no no it's it's interesting and it's very it's very fascinating to me and it's something that it's one of our missions at the creative process I think that us uh, to celebrate what I call the invisible arts of course it's very visible what you do it's very visual what you do but you know with it's uh, people are not often thinking about the film editors although it's essential you know what I mean it's right. just you know more than anything but they don't so I think that it's really important and I like to hear the rambling because when you just give an example of six or three hours of footage for a scene that you must I just them as you say the amount of concentration and we really I feel it's uh, important to to honor those people who are giving us uh, the art and the entertainment and working tirelessly you know and quiet dark rooms to deliver this that we can consume as entertainment i'm maggie Choi, an undergraduate student at boston university i'm currently majoring in journalism and minoring in political science i'm an associate podcast producer and interviewer for the creative process as a journalist i'm quite fascinated by what alan edward bell said some of the lines that has resonated with me so far is when he talks about never giving up and getting other people's opinions. It's the same in journalism. When you need to interview someone, but they are not responding, you keep trying until you get the answer. Getting other people's opinions is also important during the editing process so you can make sure your article is the best it can be. Lastly, when Bell talks about doing what you love, I thought it's quite important for not only me, but everyone that we should do what we enjoy and not force ourselves loving something that you don't want to love. For those of you just joining us, we're talking with Alan Edward Bell about his life, work, and creative process. So you mentioned other pursuits. I know you also do, uh, I guess it's not rock climbing anymore, you do silversmithing, which is a world away again from rock climbing. (laughs) Safer. Yeah, I still rock climb a little bit still. But um, I mountain bike an awful lot. Yeah. And, but silversmithing is something I've been doing since I was 14. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's actually something I don't feel like as though I've mastered it. And I, and I probably won't ever master it. But it is something that gives me a great deal of pleasure. And I, because I've been doing it so long, it's always been kind of in fits and starts. And, and now that I'm getting older and I've, I've, you know, I recently, two years ago, moved out of Los Angeles. So I now live in New Hampshire and I bought a... Uh, a farm so I have 60 acres of land and, and we're growing food and I've got a couple tractors and I'm uh, it's a forest it's basically five acres of field and a big forest and, and I built my editing basement editing theater here you can kind of see it I work in a theater kind of wow. down in the basement and then I have a jewelry studio that I built as well and um, so my intention is to eventually retire and just do jewelry full-time, which mm. probably means like 20 or 30 hours a week or whatever. Um, and I just do that because I love it. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a constant kind of struggle. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I would say I melt almost as many pieces as 
as I as I finish, mm-hmm. or I certainly uh, do them and break them and have to redo them and don't get it right. You know, it's it's one of these things, the muscle that needs to be exercised often. Mm-hmm. And when you take months off and then you go back into the room and expect to do something that's beautiful, um, you often, or at least I'm often not successful. But I enjoy I enjoy the the challenge and. Um, it is the one area where I'm allowed to kind of do whatever I want. And if somebody says they don't like it, but I like it, well, that's okay. They don't really have to like it. I like it. So it's nice. You know, it's that yeah. thing. I think it's I think it's interesting um, because people have such personal relationships to their jewelry that they pass on or their heirloom pieces, and so that it's kind of nice to be. Um, you know, a part of people's uh, memories, you know, they carry it around with them all the time. I guess it's different. You don't always get to see the reaction of people's, you know what people have, people react. It's a wider public to your film, but it's not, I don't, I don't know. And when you go to watch your films, like you do go and you watch the reactions of people or do you, I I talk to some actors, they don't like to even watch their films, (laughs) but do you like? Well, I don't generally, I mean, when I'm, Working on a, a movie that I'm working on, mm-hmm. I often uh, will not go see that in public. I mean, because I've seen it so many times, by the yeah. time it comes out, it no longer really has, um, you're inured to it, and it mm-hmm. doesn't really affect you emotionally. Um, I, although I will say watching it with an audience, it's a, different, it's a different experience. There's something that happens when you watch even a scene with an audience. You can have it, and you think it's beautiful, and then you show it to somebody, and, and you can just see and feel what their energy when they're watching it and, and imme- immediately afterwards you want to go back and change it um, but uh, when I go watch a movie that I'm that I wasn't involved in I for the most part I sit and enjoy it just like anybody else would unless I see technical things or I'm just not you know I guess I'm a little more critical of performances and some directorial and editorial choices than maybe the average lay person would be mm-hmm. Um, but for the most part, if it's an engaging uh, piece of entertainment, I'm going to be enjoying it just like anybody else. And what for you, when you those films that you've enjoyed, that you feel are just the summit of filmmaking, of film editing, that you can learn endlessly from or just enjoy for their simplicity, what are some of those? Well, I would say that the film that I love, I watch it every year, um, and I think this film very rarely transcends mm-hmm. Um, literature yes very very rarely and one of my favorite um, authors is Joseph Conrad oh yes um, and I've, I've read just about everything that he's written and mm-hmm. um, when I was young I, I it, it was hard to read at first but then once you sort of get into it it's the subtext and, and just he's an amazing amazing yeah. author and um, so the short story Heart of Darkness which mm-hmm. is a good short story don't get me wrong I just don't think it's one of his greatest pieces and the subtext of that story was pretty good but when you look at Apocalypse Now that film in my opinion transcends the literature in a way that it, it's one of the rare situations where the subtext is told better and the movie I think is if I was gonna, if you, if somebody came to me and said, "What should I do? Should I read the short story or watch the movie?" and I, you could only do one, I would say you should watch the movie and read everything else Joseph Conrad has written, um, because it is an amazing piece of art, in my opinion. And so I watch that movie a lot. I think there's a lot to learn from it, both 
you know, cinematically, character art, the way it's edited, like, it's just a fantastic film. And films like that aren't really made very often anymore. So, yeah, that's one of the movies that I go back to an awful lot. So, um, no, I, I think that you're right, too. I, I too, love um, uh, Joseph Conrad, and he's a great editor of words. Uh, but it is the power of Apocalypse Now. I think I think it was almost like when you compare the two, it seems like a Heart of Darkness was an idea I, an idea almost it's like raw material yeah. I know that that's why a lot of filmmakers look at books <laughs> this isn't a this is a treatment <laughs> but it does feel like that when you see the, the film well it does and and, yeah. and when you compare Heart of Darkness to the rest of, of Joseph Conrad's material it yeah. almost feels like it was an idea that like you know if he really wanted to lean into it he would have given us a 400 page novel right yeah. instead of a short story but yeah it, it's um and it's one of those movies that it it really holds up. Mm. It just really holds up. And, you know, a lot of the things that it's talking about are still true today as they were, you know, in the 60s or the 20s or the 1700s. Sure, the madness of war, I think that's... Uh, we're kind of doomed to repeat it. But speaking of adaptations, so you've worked on adaptations and adaptations with huge, you know, um, fan base followers. And I wonder what are those? Then it's another set of limitations because they come with all their expectations. So how how do right. you and the film, uh, uh, the directors, and I guess the creative team deal with that? You know, I mean, they were very successful. The films, but the fan base was had some expectations coming into that. Well, you have to be very very careful. And but at the same time you have to recognize that a movie is not the same as a novel so you know you only have at best maybe two hours two and a half hours to tell the story you know of a novel that maybe takes people you know a week or two or three weeks or maybe even longer depending on how fast they read so you can't you, know, you can't expand upon characters in the same way that you can when you're dealing with written words so you have to do things efficiently and quickly and you kind of have to kill some of the things that aren't necessarily going to propel the story and the character arcs forward. And the only way to do that is you either have to combine, you know, characters in, or create characters that didn't exist that will do something that maybe in a more efficient way if it's supporting the story and somehow. So there, there are always going to be changes to the, um, the visual version uh, then there would be, you know, I guess it's like an abridged novel, right? Mm -hmm. Like, I mean, nobody really, if, if you're really into literature, you're never going to buy an abridged novel, right? If, you know, I, I listen to books all the time on Audible, and, you know, if there's an abridged one, I'm never going to, like, who wants that? That's not what the author was thinking. Mm -hmm. But movies are an abridged form of entertainment. I mean, it's it just by the, the nature of them, they have to be. Um, because you're not going to sit down I guess you could do it in a miniseries but you're not really going to have an audience down for eight hours to tell the story exactly the way the book would be so you're trying to find the core elements and the core ideas and whatever the entertainment factor is and the struggles that your characters are going through and find them and, and present them in a way that gives you the same impression that you got from the literature or and heightens it perhaps um so for me, it's actually pretty easy because I have a script to go by. I mean, I think that, you know, the authors who have to adapt these works and, and the directors, and we certainly, um, you know, I get my hands in it as well, but by the time it comes to me and I start on a project, 
you know, I've had the advantage of reading the book, and I've had the advantage of reading maybe one or more versions of the script as it's gone along in its process. And so I'm able to look at it and, and make comments, and we may make changes based on some of those, and some of them, you know, may get thrown out the window. Um, but the idea that we're trying to honor the original material is definitely in the in the forefront of our thinking as we're going through the process, uh, but within reason, because we recognize that in order to tell a story in an hour and a half or two hours that is meaningful and has impact on the audience, certain things are going to have to be left out or combined. And what was it like? Now, you've uh, collaborated with some people over a number of films, and in a way you've developed your collaborative language, and you've seen Jennifer Lawrence grow up as all of us, but you've really, been, you know, shaped her image and ever grow up on screen, and, and also Francis Lawrence, who you've worked with a number of times. So what is that like working on a number of the projects? Well, it's, I mean, working with, first off, Jennifer Lawrence is probably, I think, one of the most talented, instinctual actresses that I've ever had the pleasure of editing. I mean, she is really, really good. And she knows her, she comes to set prepared, she knows her lines, and she can turn it on and off like nobody's business. I mean, she is really, really great. And, and working with Francis is a whole other set of wonderful things. So he, he is incredibly talented and he's very he's open and insightful so you know if I'm going to work with anybody I want to work with people who are nice people they're creative and they're also open to my ideas and don't make me feel small if they don't like my ideas because it you know when you're collaborating and when you're an editor sometimes you're going to have great ideas and sometimes they're not going to be great and same thing's true with a director, an actor, anybody in a creative process when you're trying to create something that's certainly for mass consumption, you're going to try things and they're not going to work. And part of what we do is we try things that don't work so that we know that, oh, we, that avenue doesn't work, but this does. Um, and it can be frustrating if you're struggling with a scene that it's not really doing what its intention was or, or you realize in the process that the, that the intention behind the scene needs to be changed. So you now have a scene that doesn't really do what it needs to do for the movie, but there is there must be a way to, to change it so that it will support the movie in a different manner. And when you're doing that, you're really starting to think outside the box, and you're going to come up with ideas that are, are bad sometimes or just don't work, or you're going to come up with ideas that really work, but the execution is, is difficult. Um, and so working with somebody like Francis... Um, who's collaborative, you're in a position where you can kind of excel because failure isn't something that's um, frowned upon. It's just acknowledged, like, oh, this doesn't work. And, you know, sometimes uh, you're, I'm asked to execute ideas that aren't going to work, and when we're there working together, like, I don't know that they're not going to work to begin with. I mean, I might be 100% behind it, but as I'm going through the process, I'm like, oh, look what this means. And then and having somebody that you have a, a relationship with and where your egos are sort of left outside the room and you're actually able to, to manipulate the material and you, there's a partnership there is one of the most valuable things um, I've experienced in my career. You know, I like to think of myself as, as creative first, but at the end of the day, my job is very much in service of the film, the directors, and the producers. 
actors in the studio. So I could put something together that I think is absolutely wonderful, and if any one of those people I just previously mentioned decides that it's not serving the, the movie, well, I'm going to have to make it different. So having people that uh, care as much as you do and accept that it's a collaborative process is fantastic, and Francis is one of the greats. I mean, he, he's just a lovely person. So working with nice people under sometimes difficult hours and conditions and, and people who have pursuits outside of just the entertainment industry um, is really valuable. And I think that you know most of the situations that are difficult are usually a lot harder when you don't have a previously existing relationship with that director. I mean, the film industry can be fraught with politics and pitfalls, and, and it can be very stressful at times. I mean, I understand now that I'm much older why a lot of those people I took out on rock climbing uh, trips were so stressed and, and, and you know, angry, um, because it can be a very, very difficult mental challenge to get past some of the ideas and the, the pressures, you know, that you, you don't realize when you just think, oh, they're making movies, it's so much fun, but, you know, there are literally hundreds of millions of dollars at stake, and people get really stressed out if they perceive that the movie isn't on track or isn't going to make you know, it's money back. Um, you know, jobs, entire careers are on the line at some of these studios if these movies don't do well. So it can be very, very um, tension-filled. And having somebody who has a pedigree, who has um, done this more than once, uh, that that sort of foundation can really make the difference between a wonderful experience and a just nightmare-laden, you know, trudge through no man's land it can be rough sometimes sure well i think that the rock climbing metaphor is great and just to even take a step back and analyze it people who i I guess appreciate the adrenaline and like that but also will will find it stress relieving to put themselves on the cliff (laughs) that's what relieved my stress (laughs) well it also puts it in perspective because you go you know we always sort of People, one of the things that everybody, when you're, every once in a while you're on a film and it, and it really goes pear-shaped and it's just, you're like, oh, this is just, you, you, everybody recognizes that it's difficult. Um, and there are times when, you know, the thing that everybody says is like, Jesus, we're not saving lives. It's not like we're in the ER department. Um, because it can feel that way. And it takes, you know, your life is so consumed by whatever it is that you're working on when you're in the entertainment industry that it can sometimes feel like what am I like why am I making these sacrifices for this um but when it's something that you really believe in it's easy to do yeah um and I just you spoke a little bit about you know receiving um you know footage out of order so you're working with unknowns you just haven't you're having to imagine them that you know they're coming you have a script and I guess sometimes as you're cutting I guess the score hasn't been written for Could you speak a bit about working towards those unknowns when you're imagining it and then the adjustments that you must make then when you receive the missing oh, pieces? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, it's interesting because uh, every if you ask every editor, they'll all pretty much, I think, fall into two camps. So there are a lot of editors who will add, they'll do temp effects wherever they can. They'll throw in temp 
contemporary music wherever they can, and they're working to try to make a piece that is as finished as possible. Um, I sort of fall in the camp that I generally do not cut with music unless I'm cutting an action piece. Yeah. Um, but I will try to fill in as many temp effects visuals as I can. Certainly, maybe not to the final uh, version, but to so that the audience member or even myself get a clue as what the timing is and what, you know, not necessarily what it's going to look like, but what what it's going to do, you know. Um, you know, if the volcano has to blow up, then I'll put something in that looks like a volcano exploding if I can. Um, that sort of thing. Because it, it pertains to the feeling of the, the piece. But music is one of the key, key ingredients that every, you know, movie uh, needs. And it usually comes the final music comes relatively late in the process. Um, I am a firm believer that if you cut together a scene without music and it is working efficiently, it should play, and it should play well without music. Um, and then when you add the music and you support whatever the emotional um, thread line is or, or purpose of the scene, it's going to be more powerful than if you started with music. Music is such... It affects us in such an emotional, sort of subconscious level that if you start there, you can actually color the, the performances in ways that they're not really supporting it. So you can end up with this wonderful piece of music, and you can cut something together that's really not as complementary to the music as it could be. So I feel that if you start by cutting the scene and getting all the pieces working well, all the characters are connecting, and the audience is connecting with the characters, and then you add music, you're really kind of putting icing on top of the cake. But if you start with the icing, you're not going to make a great cake. It's just, but that's my own personal opinion. So um, a lot of times I will, uh, rarely will send a scene out to show a producer without music in it, but, you know, some of the greatest directors I've worked with, people like Francis, you know, we kind of agreed it's better to work on the, the scene, unless it's a musically driven piece, um, like you know, a good example would be the opening of um, Red Sparrow. That was a whole operatic thing, and we, you know that was very musically driven. Um, but for the most part, uh, I choose to work without those pieces and make it as good as I possibly can, so that when we hand that piece over to the composer or even the the music editor who's going to be finding temp pieces of music to support it, um, the scene is more fleshed out, and they are connecting with it and have a greater understanding of, of what the music is meant to do, um, and then it just becomes, I think, a, a more polished piece when it's done. There are a lot of people out there who would argue with me about that, um, and a lot of that, I think, has to do more with just it's a lot easier to watch things with music because music has such an emotional um, tie-in with us. You know, we, we feel music, and, you know, you can watch a blank wall with a great piece of music, and this is the most beautiful blank wall I've ever seen. Um, so, you know, I think it's best to sort of avoid that and start with a really good scene and then add the music. So, 
Just on a side note, I saw something, it, just speaking to the power of music or how it can evoke memories or bring back people who are, I just saw an interesting program about people who had uh, stages of like complete amnesia, like complete amnesia, can't remember 15 seconds ago kind of thing. But, you know, if, or as a former musician, I think this is like the most extreme case of amnesia, but can can play by heart the thing yeah and then 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 on um, more um less severe cases people with um alzheimer's and and just have no yeah. sense but you sing them a song or even that comes to them and it just animates them and they're just like they were young again and so that's the beauty of music um and I guess if you if you use music too strongly in the editing process it can drown out <laughs> everything else so I imagine it's a balance that you have to work with it is. Well, I mean, the thing is, is that you can take a really badly edited scene, mm. you know, or something that doesn't work and apply music to it, and you're going to think it's the greatest thing ever. Mm. Um, but is that scene what it could have been had you really polished it without the music? I, I just think it's easier to look at things in their raw state and recognize whether or not they're meeting your expectations and then apply that nice, beautiful polish to it all, right? Um, and I always sort of viewed as music as sort of the final kind of polish. Um, and it is, you know, there is something about that. You know, when I, I experienced this with my own father. Um, he died of uh, Alzheimer's and dementia. And uh, he loved Marty Robbins, this old country music. Uh, and I would go visit him and play this for him. And, you know, he basically was not present unless and when it was playing I mean he wasn't really my dad but you could see it was getting through and he was enjoying himself um, and so it's that powerful so and, and I think it's something that as filmmakers we have to you know we can't underestimate that and we have to be very cognizant of what it's doing to our process so you know putting the final touches on too early is really not necessarily in my opinion the best method to solve the problem but you wouldn't do the final visual effects before you finish the structure of the movie because you don't really know what's going to be needed, how things are going to land, and so there's a definite stage of things that need to take place. But music is definitely it's a powerful, powerful tool. Yeah, I think I think we're just beginning to understand. I think we don't fully know how much is communicated, even through just a tone. Or I mean, you are very sensitive to it, uh, but I think. That's why it bothers me sometimes when I hear people say um, animals like don't have language. I'm like, really? <laughs> I'm hearing yeah, one. I They're know, going I... crazy out my window. The birds today. You know, I, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah. One of the things that I think is really interesting is that you know humans over time, and they're still doing it today. And I just think how it's such a lack, shows such a lack of creative thinking. The idea that the size of your brain. Is equates to your level of intelligence mm -hmm. is uh, really yeah. like computer processors are getting smaller and smaller and more and more powerful. The I, you know, like science has shown that size isn't necessarily equate to intelligence. It's just it's just a matter of how efficient that device is. Yeah. Um, you know, and we don't know. Like the idea that animals don't feel and. I mean, you could say all those things. It makes it a lot easier to go out and shoot something so you could bring it home and cook it, mm. right? But let's be honest. Fish have feelings, you know? <laughs> That's, it's just a fact. They, 
I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but I choose to believe that. I mean, anything with a central nervous system that has to think, you know, decide is this a predator, is this a you know, food or whatever, they're gonna, there's going to be some sort of sense of, you know, they're going to feel pain. Uh, whether or not they, they, you know, feel emotion the same way we do, that's immaterial yes. as far as I'm concerned. And there's this physical sense, so that's something you're dealing with well, the, the emotion or the thought being embodied and what a gesture, like you can think, and particularly people who, whose art form is like dance exists in their body, their brain is processing a lot of things, but so is their entire body, so is their breathing, yeah. you know. And um, so I think the intelligence, um, and particularly in different parts of the world, they don't distinguish between... Um, the mind and the body there's a, a union that's the balance is important um, and that's what I appreciate so much about film I love I agree with you I love writing okay writing is, was my first love but with film it combines all these things and you don't know as, whether it's an, a thought or an emotion or you know to I me mean? it's blends beautifully yeah I, I, what I love about film and it's one of the things that we're I, I wish I could cite scientific experiments I'm not sure where they are but I know that they've been done where people when they're in a theater or in front of the TV set and they're watching something there are periods of time when they really don't they have a hard time indistinguishing themselves from the main character that they're connected to in the, in, in the piece and you know in some ways that's like dreaming in a way you know when you're when you're in a dream everything's sort of centered around you and you know, sometimes you have these beautiful, wondrous dreams. Sometimes they're very exciting. Sometimes they're dangerous. Um, and when you're watching a movie, you're kind of escaping, but you're not. It's not an escape that doesn't require some cognitive processing. Where sometimes you're challenged. Sometimes you're just entertained, and you know, you get a laugh and blow the stress off of the day. For me, some of the greatest movie experiences where people find themselves in a place that they would never, never be, and they're asked to think about complex ideas you know what what would I do in this situation or afterwards talk with each other about you know what did that mean and why did they do it this way and what would you do differently and and it even though in some ways we all watch it together if we're in a theater it's an individual experience that we can all enjoy and then relate with each other about afterwards and it's a it's a medium that I think is it's unique in that way because you know you can read a book and you can interact with other people but when I'm reading a book I'm not actually I recognize that the main character in the book is not me like they're making their choices and it's a, it's a much slower process hmm. so it, it I feel like it doesn't it doesn't hit you in a sort of a subconscious level that when you're when you're experiencing a movie you're hearing it you're feeling it musically and you're seeing it you're sort of projecting yourself into the screen um, and that I think is somewhat new, unique I mean I, I think that it happens sometimes when you're in a museum and you're looking at paintings and sculptures but it's a different it's a more um, it's less subconscious you know it's a more um, conscious thought process I think that allows you to do that and with filmmaking and you're watching a movie it's just it's such a such a unique sort of 21st century or 20th century thing that's it's I think we're still trying to understand it but it's it's a very powerful medium there's no doubt about it oh yes I think definitely I think what for me what's special about film and you could say that theater is related to that but it's not as um immersive in that sense it, you have to 
make a stretch of the imagination like you know it's not everything isn't given you know but um but i think that it's so beautifully immersive film in that it speaks to you no matter what whatever the principal way you experience the world whether you connect through images or sound or stories or you know uh whatever that is then it can speak to you so there's really something for everyone and you can't say that so much for books or paintings that focus in on a one's particular sense um i this is you you might think this is uh disrespectful like someone who skips around the pages of a book or something but one you spoke about this um the immersive or dreamlike quality of watching a film and one of my favorite things to do i like i love to i love cinema but also another uh, another i love also fall half falling asleep during a film <laughs> but because because i think that one of the highest values of all the arts is to engage our imaginations not just to accept it but this okay that's what you did and now i'm going to add to that story so what happens when i fall asleep during a film not always, but this thing happens where I'm here, I'm receiving these things. I might be opening my eyes and think, and I sometimes have this parallel dream of telling a story. Um, and it's lo it's lovely. It's, it's always nice. Sometimes I feel like it improves upon it and I wake up the next day maybe and I have had this dream that's been in dialogue with a film that maybe was mediocre, but I'm like, <laughs> the, the dream I had built on it, you know? So maybe this oh, is... Maybe it's a bit like the collaborative process where you're given this raw footage and then you make a puzzle out of it, a different one. Well, it's 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 interesting because I think that you know it's one of the things in a way you're touching on this overlooked aspect of the of entertainment as a form, you know, film as a form of entertainment mm -hmm. is that you know we spend so much time on visual and talking, you know, mm -hmm. so dialogue is audio, um, but the rest of the sound, right, both the dialogue, sound effects, and the music. You know, that comprises a huge, at least 50% of the experience. So if you take the visuals away and you put yourself in a dream state, right, that sort of, you're not quite fully asleep, you're kind of in a REM state, but you're still cognizant, you're hearing, um, then your brain is free to sort of fill the images up and allow your body to feel things. Because, you know, one of the things that people don't really talk about much is how, you know, when we hear and we see things, there are physio physiological changes going on in our bodies, and we, our body feels certain ways. You know, we may get nervous, we may get tingly, we may get excited. There are a lot of different physiological things that are happening when we're watching films. And if you're just listening to it and you're in a dream state, I mean, the sky's the limit. You know, who knows what, what you're going to be going through. And you're absolutely right. If it's a mediocre uh, film, chances are the sound is probably better than a lot of the imagery. Um, you know, uh, so it, it, it's, there are a lot of layers to the mm -hmm. onion, you know, that create the entertainment. Sure. I, I imagine it's a kind of a collaboration, improvisation. And it also speaks to something that we didn't speak so much about. I, it, and, and it's one of what you're doing is you're editing is you're thinking a lot about time I imagine and I know we might be going over time but we're thinking a lot about time you're thinking about rhythms and how that and what is the math involved because that you must have this amazing mathematical brain beyond the artistic yeah what's the music well, there's not a lot of math involved I mean there's a little bit of math involved but it's not it's not like a very technical thing uh, you know I when people talk about editing, they often talk about pacing, mm -hmm. right? So is something paced just right, or is it too fast, too slow? Um, 
And <clears throat> there are a lot of different ways to judge pacing, right? Mm -hmm. So um, some people, if you're watching a music video, you know, a lot of times you'll see things that are, the cuts are right on downbeats of the music, mm -hmm. right? So it's like you can, you can almost know, oh, there's going to be a cut next. Sometimes those, the downbeats are hit by things happening inter-frame, so there isn't actually a cut from image to image, but it's happening because someone puts, slams something down or moves or something happens visually. Um, sometimes there, aren't, there doesn't seem to be anything on the downbeat at all. Um, and so there are some obvious ways that you can judge pacing, you know, by you know, putting sort of a, this idea of a click track, which would be the downbeat of the music. But if there isn't any music, you know, there's a silent sort of pace to the piece. I think that, you know, when editing is invisible, that it's very rare that those cuts are going to be right on the downbeat of a, a time track. It's going to be more, the pacing is going to be about the audio delivery, how fast people are talking to one another, um, visually what's happening inter-frame, you know, within the image. Um, and how they how the cuts interrelate to one another that keep your your audience engaged as you're going forward, right? Um, when there are times when editing is visual and it's almost like a character in the movie, and I can cite an example of that would be this movie I did called um, Little Manhattan, which the editing was very very playful, and uh, you know that movie was paced in a slightly different way. There were a lot of inter interframe edits, but then there were also a lot of, you know, the editing was very, very in your face. It, it wasn't like we were trying to pretend that we weren't making a movie and it wasn't, you know, there were times when we tried to make it invisible, but there were other times when we just wanted to be playful. Um, and so it was sort of like a character. And that changes up the pacing, right? So it's it's a, a different kind of way of pacing a story. So there isn't a ton of math involved unless I'm doing something that's very, very specific, you know, um, where we know that we want, uh, I'll go back to uh, the Red Sparrow because it's one of the more recent ones that had a really, the beginning was very, was paced in a very methodical way because there was a ballet going on with an action scene. So I had to kind of find a common denominator um, in terms of beats per minute that would work for all, for the, the ballet and the action. So that when we got it together and we gave it to a composer, he didn't have to make enormous beat changes between each thing. It would feel like one cohesive sort of ballet going through the, the um, from the ballet to the action and back to the ballet. So that was somewhat mathematical. But for the most part, it's really more about gut. It's like, how does it feel as you're going through the process? And, you know, I'm looking for, for pacing and beat interframe as well as from cut to cut and from scene to scene. So... The math, I think, is mostly subconscious. Oh, right. And also, people tell you, like, oh, this is too slow, or this is too fast, and you kind of adjust it. I do want to ask you, um, since you um, began as a film editor, what the expectations in terms of uh, action or, um, you know, events, or how full a movie or how full a scene must be has changed, what are those expectations? I mean, I think that my experience of time has changed in the last 20 years. I'm not sure what marks the beginning of your film editing, but, um, you know, what, what, what have you noticed over that period of time? Well, I've noticed that things are, I would say that if you, I've been at it for about 30 years. Mm -hmm. So if you look at movies that were made in the 80s and even the late 70s, they're paced much more slowly. Mm -hmm. And there are far, far fewer edits in those films. You know, a lot of people sort of 
I remember when MTV came out, everybody was complaining about the TV generation. They're, you know, everything's so fast, and they want so much footage, and everything has to be cut, cut, cut. And I, and I suppose there's some truth to that, but I think that as humans evolve to ingest, you know, visual, audio, entertainment, uh, we get faster at it, and we want it to be paced fast, and certainly today is no different now that we have cell phones and, we, you know, it's, we're constantly popping from screen to screen to screen to screen, and there's this sort of ADHD kind of thing going on that seems to be very um, prevalent, certainly in the U.S., uh, where people just have very short attention spans. And I have noticed that over the years that stories tend to be faster paced. And when they're not faster paced, even, you know, I have a four-year-old. If it's slow, they're, the kids are just like, this is so slow. Like, when's it going to get better, Dad? You know, and I, there's something happening to us at, as, a, as a species where we want things to be paced faster. That doesn't mean that you can't have slower entertainment I just think you know there's a wide variety of what's out there but overall I would say that films tend to be paced a lot faster I mean even dramas and you know like I'm sure that if you compare the same movie it's, it's actually something I want to do now that I'm not thinking of it like I want to look at some of the Merchant Ivory films compared to some of the similar films of today that maybe not Merchant Ivory films but you know like Emma and look at some of the films about that type of subject matter and see how what the pacing difference are and I'm sure that you'll notice that the ones that are made today are, much, are paced much quicker. Yeah, you know, um, it, it's interesting the, the things that you want to make sure that we don't forget how to do is I think if there's some classics that don't have a lot of cuts but are full of tension like one classic is Rufi for, for example um, that extended cut of the the, the break uh, break in heist you know and what you can do with just like <laughs> just an extend just an extended cut and just you know no sound and it's just interesting that yeah um, yeah absolutely I and, mean well even present day you look at like here's a perfect example like mm -hmm. 1917 mm -hmm. you know, here's oh the movie yes was, you know ostensibly one shot right but. If you look at that, that's a perfect example of intra-frame pacing, mm -hmm. right? So you've got, there's maybe four cuts in the movie that I can point out that I know of for certain just because of, you know, the characters walking, you know, there's a wall and they're walking through and there's a natural place for a cut or they go to black or whatever. Um, but that movie is paced very quickly. Mm -hmm. It's not slow at all. There's, it's very, there's very little languid moments in the film. There are some because you can't have fast paced without pauses and rest but it, it, it is really interesting how things change and the appetite has changed so even though you have one continuous shot you're still pacing the movie up for modern audience and what for you and then i'll just ask you some a few questions of the future and i think it's interesting because we've been talking about time but you know you've worked on these you know Im immense uh blockbuster films you've also worked on dramatic pieces where would you in what, what what opportunities, what are you looking for to be doing in the future that you would like to do more of? Um, well, I, I want to work with people that I like and I enjoy working with. I find that, I don't know if this is obvious if you look at all the movies that I've edited, mm -hmm. but the movies that, that tend to resonate with me that I feel the most strongly about, the movies were at the core, are movies uh, about love, love and sacrifice. Those are the things that, that and, and when I say that, I'm not talking about romantic comedies necessarily, though I'm not against romantic comedies in any way. 
I just feel that that is one, it's the one kind of universal experience that means a lot to me. Um, and particularly movies where um, people are sacrificing something, not necessarily themselves, but are willing to sacrifice things in pursuit of love or because they love someone or something. Those are the things that I find really powerful and resonate within me. Um, it's an interesting anecdote. Like, I don't really like superhero films, mm-hmm. um, even though I have worked on some. I was asked to do the original, uh, not the original, but the more recent Wonder Woman movie. Mm-hmm. And um, I turned it down because I read the script and I, I didn't realize this. It was an early version of the script and it wasn't quite done. And the director had was very emphatic, like, this is not the script that we're shooting, but we want you to do the movie. And, and I turned it down because I not really into superhero films and I, the whole bullets and the wrist thing it just wasn't <laughs> yeah. for me and I, and I really felt like you know this director deserves somebody who is going to bring everything to it and not be like judging the material mm-hmm. um, and then when I saw the movie I wrote her an email because I said you know if you told me this movie was about somebody like I didn't get it from the script that her superpower was her love for humanity mm-hmm. then I like I would have not only done the movie, I would have begged you to let me do the movie. Uh, no, but I think that's interesting. And as an aside, I, when I was a teenager, I worked for Alexander Sulkin, who I think started this whole superhero, the Superman. <laughs> he was responsible, right. whether that's a good or a bad thing, but he also produced um, The Process by Orson Welles. So. But that was an education. But yeah, as long as there's a good emotional core, whatever the, the outward vehicle, the genre, you know, but as long as that's there, it's something that you can yeah. get excited about, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I also like movies where the rules make sense, mm-hmm. you know? So one of the things that makes a movie accessible to me is that I don't have to, this idea that there's a reality in the film that the rules are not being broken, that I, if I were the main character, I would have, I would understand those rules and I could live by them or die by them or, you know, what have you. Without that, it, the movies it just feel like fluff to me. So you, you have to be very careful when you have the Superman, for instance, you know, if there was, if there was no kryptonite, I don't think you could really have a very long lasting character like that because where's the where's the problem right Mm -hmm. he's invincible and that's part of what i don't like about superhero films is that they're not really there's not enough they're not reality based enough and i think the human condition there's plenty of material there that we don't have to have superpowers and i feel like if humans had a superpower it would be love Mm -hmm. so that's why i'm really drawn to movies that at their core whether it be you know somebody showing love through sacrifice or you know, a lifelong commitment to something, that those are the things that, that really resonate with me. And unfortunately, I don't think we're making enough films that fall into those categories anymore. They tend to be these big superhero action, just pure entertainment pieces that I'm kind of bored with. You know, I want there to be something more to the material. I mean, it's one of the things that I really liked about Hunger Games. It, if you watch those movies in succession and read the books, I think that it really holds true. They're very, very damning um, stories about what power and how it corrupts and how, you know, good versus evil become very interchangeable when you're in the middle of a, of a, of a conflict. And those things are universal truths and are full of universal questions that, you know, 
makes sense. And so it's not just this, you know, story of this heroine. It's it's there's more to the to the body of work than just you know some Marvel the universe is going to destroy and be blown up if we don't get this crystal and put it in this box or whatever you know the, that type of comic book idea. Not to not to bash on Marvel movies. I think that they have a great formula. They're very entertaining. Sure. But um, I'm looking for some morals and some things to think about. Yes, I think that the Hunger Games is very powerful critique of our current govern um, of governance in general. What you value, a critique of the whole social media um, entertainment, uh, turning warfare into entertainment or entertainment into a kind of a battle. It is it is it is powerful critique. So um, I, there's no doubt why they resonated. Um, yeah, I do think it's important. It's interesting that you say yeah the, the superheroes. If if there's not a chance of someone actually dying, if they're invincible, if there's there's nothing to risk, then if you say why are you watching it? <laughs> it's it's a there's no end. <laughs> there's no end to it. Yeah. So I mean, for me, the future, in terms of you get back to the question, mm-hmm. I, I want to do movies with people that I love. Uh, about love or with you know movies that have that resonate and and are meaningful to me when I when I read the script or the book um and I don't you know I only want to do a few more films I I don't want to do very many more movies and then I'm going to probably hang up my hat and uh just work on the farm and make jewelry full time and who knows what I'll do after that but uh, I feel like I'm two-thirds of the way through my life and I want to spend the next third outside as much as possible Mm -hmm. so yeah i'm becoming very selective about what i do Mm -hmm. um film wise i I set up this remote editing facility here before you know this pandemic hit us uh and you know my agent everybody was like wow this is going to be a bit of a sell Mm -hmm. but um you know people have accepted i did i did do some supervising on a, a few horror films uh, so the last year I was working actually from this room mm-hmm. on uh, three horror films just as a, a an editing supervisor, which really just meant I was one of the other editors. And then I gave some, you know, I gave uh, some advice to the director and the other editor about how to navigate studio drama and stuff like that. But um, for the most part, uh, I plan to take the rest of this year off, mm-hmm. or at least the summer off. Yeah, and I had planned to do it before the pandemic, but now I'm happily doing it. You're you're yeah. ahead of the curve, definitely on that. Um, <laughs> you were you got that social distancing thing down. <laughs> yeah, I really did figure that out before. Um, but yeah, as as we, I guess I just do want to ask is it you know it's an educational initiative, and we are uh, we we're talking a bit about the future, but it, I think it's a bit on all of our mind too about the environment technology and the kind of world we're leaving our children um so as you reflect on these things what are some ways you think that we might improve some of our current systems you know so that we could have a a better tomorrow pass on a better future in terms of education in terms of uh, filmmaking education filmmaking you know including more arts and education just you know as you think you know there must be things that you think this could be done you know well i think that it's interesting because uh now that you know the world is kind of in this, you know, various stages of lockdown, mm-hmm. I think that people are starting to realize that they don't necessarily have to get in their cars and drive, and mm-hmm. you know, we can do things remotely. Like you're in Paris, and I'm in New Hampshire, mm-hmm. and you know, it's it's not quite the same as being together, but it's it's pretty darn close. It's 
it's not mm-hmm. it's not bad. I, I feel like if I ran into you in the supermarket, I would recognize you and I could say, hey, Mia, how are you? Mm-hmm. Nice to see you. Um, and, you know, that using the technology that we have at our disposal, I think it, to its fullest, once we're done with this pandemic, will help us a great deal at mitigating some of the, uh, the climate issues that we have and the pollution issues that we have. Um, and I also think that, you know, we need to start on an individual level thinking about how responsible we, we want to be. You know, the idea of recycling is, it's a great idea, but we really need, what it really means is reuse things. And we need to start making things that can be fixed. Um, and I, you know, one of the things that we've been doing for far too long is creating this disposable nature of things. And I, and I think it's more prevalent sort of in Western cultures than Eastern cultures because where you have a lot of wealth, there's an awful lot of, um, you know, you just, there's waste. There's just way too much waste. The idea that we make things and then when they break, they're just designed to be thrown out is, that's got to stop. And I, and I think the only way to really make it stop is for people to stop, you know, buying the cheapest product, start thinking about, you know, things, do I really need this? Is there something else I can use? And, and you know, is there a better product that maybe costs a little bit more that when it breaks down, I can fix it? You know, do I need a new cell phone every year? You know, or can I keep this phone I have for five years or half the time the new features that they're selling are not worth the thousand dollars that they're asking us to pay um, yeah. and when you think about what that does to the economy you know to the world to the earth maybe it's you know it i think that and the only way that we're going to shape the future and make it better is if we do it a little piece at a time individually because the corporations aren't going to lead us there the only way that's going to happen neither will governments by the way the only way it's going to happen is and start making those changes themselves. And I think that in some ways, I mean, I like maybe I'm a little bit naive, but I like to think that because people are being forced to live differently right now, um, people are being forced to eat together and cook meals together and spend time, um, maybe not. So, you know, I know a lot of people are on screens, but there's quite a bit more time for sort of self-reflection and families are becoming closer ones that aren't split apart anyway. I'm hoping that as people make do with what they have, they realize they don't need quite as much as they thought they did, and the level of consumption will go down. And I think that if we can, you know, in the future of all of us can sort of keep this period in perspective and really think about what we're doing, you know, do we, the U.S. is in a, I think has really found itself in, with its pants down in terms of, you know, there's there's a global economy and a global world out there, and we need to acknowledge that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, you know, sovereign nations have to be able to provide for themselves and provide for others, right? So there isn't, like right now, uh, I think the U.S. went total global, like, all right, we're not going to make anything here. It's all going to be made in China or India, mm-hmm. um, as opposed to, well, maybe we can make some stuff here and we can make some stuff there, but there are certain things that, you know, all the countries should be working together to solve this coronavirus issue, but we should also be looking at, well, what does it mean when one country has all the medicine and all the manufacturing capabilities? Is that really 
the best way for the world to be designed? I, I don't think so. And I'm not suggesting that you know we should have one world government or you know that one form is better than another. But but there are a lot of questions that need to be answered and asked um, for us to have a positive future. And I think that you know if you look at the world, the world is actual the earth itself it's loving this pandemic yes it's absolutely loving it and we should pay attention to that because there's no reason why we can't have a global economy that's healthy it doesn't need to be making huge huge double digits every year you know everybody sort of looks at the stock markets and says that's the the health of the economy i mean i know they're looking at gdp and how many people are unemployed and all those unemployment numbers are just going to rise and rise as long as the technology is marching in the direction it's going. But we need to ask ourselves, what are we doing to make the world a better place? And how can we do it? I think if we do it on an individual level, we'll, we'll start to act on collective ways that will resonate in a positive way for the Earth. That's my soapbox. No, I, I think that, that that relates back to what you were saying about love, if you could think about it collectively, and I, I think that that's true. I think that, yeah, I th- we can do, when our life is at stake, we definitely know how to stay indoors and reduce our pollution. So I, I, I like to see it in a positive way, although it's extremely unfortunate that we needed this kind of wake-up call. And probably we're going to have a collective amnesia again. We'll need another wake-up call. But it's nice to, to embrace those positive things. I think your message is really beautiful. I think you told us already what the, for you what's the importance of the arts and film are. But I guess if you had something, some advice for young film editing students out there, what might that be? Or just film students or people wanting to get their foot in the door in the arts and they have no idea. <laughs> they're just they're well, climbing I, rocks. I would, and, say, yeah. I would say have a, keep a very open mind. Be prepared to work very hard and recognize this is the biggest thing that I think happens and it's it's not just for editors, it's for writers, directors, and actors. When you're in a collaborative, creative environment, sometimes collaboration is, it doesn't feel like a positive word, right? Because we all have ideas about what we want our process and end result to be. But when you're collaborating, there are a lot of opinions in the room. And if you start in a defensive position, listening to other people's opinions and ideas, you're going to miss the root what they're trying to say. If you start from a place of, gee, we're all in this together and we want to make the best film possible, even though, you know, so-and-so may not understand what it is I'm trying to do, maybe they have a different opinion of what a good piece of, you know, movie is or piece of entertainment is. Um, if you look at the, at the, the root of what they're asking for, a lot of times those notes or those ideas which seem completely outrageous and it's so easy to just shut down and go, that guy's a complete nincompoop. Um, if you find the heart and soul of what their idea is, almost always there's truth there. And if you lean into that, you can make the piece better. And even if it isn't better, and you've leaned into it, and you've tried it, and you show them that you've tried it, you will then have somebody who's willing to collaborate with they feel that they're being heard. And they're not just going to give you notes based on egotistical ideas of I have power and I should do this. They're going to see that you're going to actually try them. And most good people are not going to waste your time. They're going to, they really do want to make the movie better. And so I, that is the best piece of advice I could, could give anybody because it was certainly one piece of advice that nobody gave me when I first started. And I kind of had to learn it the hard way. 
And it took me a long time to learn this, this nugget, and it's really valuable. And I think if you bring it into pretty much everything that you do, you'll find that as long as you're surrounding people who, surrounding yourself with people who are compatriots, who want what's best for you as well as themselves, um, you're going to, your life is just going to become enriched. I, I think that that's so true. I, and I think that the, the level of community that I witnessed, um, because my stepfather works on television too. Um, so it's just um, something we can all learn from because you you really need it to the project to, to succeed and do well. And um, I think that if other people in business or whatever had that kind of sense of community, um, we would all be enriched for it. So I want to thank you, um, Alan Bell, for inviting us into your imaginative world, for sharing all these insights, for your great example of, you know, how to build an, an idodactic life and your insights into collaboration. Um, I, I think that this, this is excellent for any young person interested in film and the arts. Uh, I want to thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Well, well thank you for including me. Pleasure talking to you. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews producer on this podcast was Maggie Choi. Digital Media Coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas and Dalias, and performed by the Athenian Trio. Has this interview sparked your creative process? If so, you can submit your creative works to submissions at creativeprocess.info for an opportunity to be included in the projection elements of our exhibition traveling to leading universities or published on our website at www.creativeprocess.info. Want to get involved in exhibitions or interviews? Email us at team at creativeprocess.info.